to the book of Genesis we go this morning to the 39th chapter to pick up one last time in that chapter in this series, but uh, we'll continue our reading into through the 40th chapter this morning. So to Genesis chapter 39, I invite your attention. I've mentioned to you a couple of times now that the scripture comes to us in many uh, layers, almost like an onion, you might say. You can peel away the the layers of each passage and peeling them one after another find the next one only richer and deeper than the one before. We'll, we'll take one more peel from Genesis 39 and from the history that opens up to us beginning in the 40th chapter as well. So to Genesis 39, but first to prayer. Our Father in heaven, how rich and marvelous and wonderful is your word in which you speak to us and teach us And every time we come to it, our Father, it seems there is something else to learn from it or the same lessons that we haven't learned before. Yet you are faithful in whatever way you teach us from your word from day to day and from week to week in this your house. Grant us grace, we pray now, to hear your voice and not the voice of man in the preaching of your word. Speak to us, direct us in truth, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 39, beginning at verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now we're all aware of where the history goes from there. Potiphar's wife casts her eyes upon Joseph, but her wiles do not work. Joseph, with his eyes fixed on God, does not fall prey to her enticement. So she, the woman scorned, plays the victim and cries to her husband that Joseph has tried to seduce her. We pick up at verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. 
And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. Now, what exactly these men had done to earn this penalty in this prison, to be placed in this prison, is not uh, really clear, nor is it really important. But it is worth noting here that the cupbearer was more than just the one who tasted the wine for the king to be sure that it wasn't poison. He would have become something of a trusted advisor to the king as well and a close confidant. As for the captain of the guard, though some commentators assume that it is still Potiphar, uh, we aren't entirely certain about how much time has passed and therefore uh, whether the identity of the captain of the guard has remained the same or changed. But now back to the prisoners in verse 5. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So vivid was their dream, that is, that troubled them. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell me. Tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand." And Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you are his cupbearer, when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets in my, on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Now you might be wondering how many ways this guy 
is going to die. First, his head's going to be lifted from him, and then he's going to be hung on a tree. But it means that after he is beheaded, his body will be hung out, exposed. Now the question, the big question, will they come true, these interpretations? Are they right? Let's see. Verse 20. On the day, on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Jack Collins, one of the professors at our own Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, an outstanding scholar of the Hebrew language, well-known and renowned for his understanding of the Old Testament, has remarked about how clearly the gospel can be read in the Scripture. It's even clearly to be seen in the New Testament too, he says. I hope you see his point. We sometimes err by thinking of the Old Testament as outmoded, as outdated, merely a preparation for what really matters, the New Testament. We think we find only law in the Old Testament and gospel only in the New. Well, this passage, and indeed much most of Joseph's life and the lives of the saints in the Old Testament, along with its prophecies, its laws, its teachings, point brilliantly to the Christ who was to come. The gospel is clearly to be seen in passages and in providence, providences recorded in these passages long before Christ was even born and lived and died and rose again from the dead. One of those the ways that Christ is seen in the scriptures that precedes him is through what we call, through the scripture rather, that precedes him, are what we call types. Which is why I've called this sermon, Joseph, Type of Christ. I don't mean to say that Joseph is a kind of Christ, or even a Christ. What I mean is that he is a foreshadowing of Christ, a picture of Christ, a sort of embodied prophecy of Jesus. See, in Joseph's life and experience, at, at many points, is anticipated the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, some scholars want to debate whether, indeed, Joseph is a type of Christ in the technical sense with which scholars use that word type in the study of typology. And I could bore you with the uh, details of the debate this morning, no doubt, but that would not be edifying. Basically, they argue that because Scripture itself does not call him with the word a type of Christ, neither should we. 
Well, fair enough. But we are in the company of many a great Bible scholar this morning when we call Joseph a type, a, a deliberate picture, a foreshadowing of Christ. Franz Delich, for instance, whose classic commentary is on some of your shelves as well, wrote that the story of Joseph described it as a type of the pathway of Christ from lowliness to exaltation, from slavery to liberty, from suffering to glory. Another book on my shelf spends over 20 pages tracing the parallels between Joseph and Jesus. Of course, the prize has got to go to A.W. Pink, who over the course of 68 pages in his flowing commentary on Genesis, gleanings on Genesis it's called, points out 101 parallels between Joseph and Jesus. But none perhaps puts all of this so eloquently as the famous Blaise Pascal, French mathematician and man of letters who wrote, Christ prefigured by Joseph, innocent, beloved of his father, sent by his father to see his brothers, is sold for 20 pieces of silver. Through this he becomes their Lord, their Savior, the Savior of strangers and the Savior of the world. None of this would have happened but for their plot to destroy him, the sale, their rejection of him. In prison, Joseph, innocent between two criminals. Jesus on the cross between two thieves. He prophesies the salvation of the one and the death of the other, when to all appearances they are alike. Christ saves the elect and damns the reprobate for the same crime. Joseph only prophesies. Jesus acts. Joseph asks the man who will be saved to remember him when he comes in glory, and the man Jesus saves asks to be remembered when he comes into his kingdom. Now I could list for you this morning dozens of and dozens of ways that Joseph's life parallels that of our Lord and Savior. I could point out how Joseph was rejected by his brothers as Jesus was by his brothers, the Jews. How Joseph was sold as Jesus was for pieces of silver. How both resisted terrible temptations. Both prophesied. Both suffered. And then were exalted. Both gave bread to the hungry. Both saved many people. Joseph physically. Jesus physically and spiritually, and on and on we could go. And that might prove as remarkable to you as it did to me when for the first time as a college student I had these things pointed out to me and wondered marvelously over such amazing things, this living and breathing prophecy of Jesus in flesh and blood. But instead, I want to point out to you only the most general pattern this morning of the lives of Joseph and Jesus. 
and then conclude with a few lessons from all of this. I say for all of the parallels that could be drawn, consider this basic pattern. Humiliation and exaltation. Humiliation and exaltation. First, consider the humiliation of Jesus that is prophesied in Joseph. One day Jacob, you remember, concerned about his other sons, sent his favored son, Joseph, to find them. Faithfully, as we saw, obediently, willingly, Joseph goes, follows his father's instruction. But upon coming to them, he finds himself rejected by them. He finds himself thrown into a pit by them. He finds himself sold by them. Then, falsely accused of a crime he never committed, Joseph finds himself thrown into another pit, the pit of prison, forgotten, rejected in the depths. But consider the humiliation of your Savior. Christians, Jesus, like Joseph, was sent by his father on an errand for his brothers. Only it was not merely from Ephrath to Shechem or to Dothan that God sent his son. No, it was from heaven to earth. It was not a matter of a of miles or of days travel. It was whatever distance it is. We cannot tell. What, whatever distance it is that separates between the glories and the splendors of heaven and the smelly, dirty stall of a Bethlehem barn. It was from the throne to the manger to the feed trough and eventually to the cross. But in the meantime, between the manger and the cross, take careful note of this, dear flock. He was numbered with the transgressors. We read this morning in that most remarkable passage of Scripture from the prophet Isaiah some 700 years before Christ's coming. And this this should take our breath away. Our Savior, the Lord of glory, the King of kings, the Holy One who never sinned, indeed whose eyes are too pure even to behold sin, this one who, who despised sin with every ounce of his quintessentially pure, unalloyed heart. This holy son was numbered with the transgressors, the sinners like Joseph who was falsely accused. Only more, Jesus was made sin for us. 
And he who loved holiness more than we can possibly imagine, more than you and I love our own lives, whose chief delight was to please his Father in heaven, had your sins placed on him and would have him finally nailed to the cross between two prisoners like Joseph in the prison between the king's baker and cupbearer it would have him despised it would have him accused and eventually forsaken and that by his own father by his own heavenly father so that the blackness of the darkness should descend upon him. The ultimate rejection be his, and we hear him cry from that darkness, My God! My God! Why hast thou forsaken me? And the cry of praising angels flying about his throne in heaven, calling out to him, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. To the cry of dereliction and the bewilderment of the angels when he calls out to his Father who has turned from him. His humiliation took him all the way down to the unspeakable depths of despair under all of the holy wrath of God. Do you and do me for our sin. The sinless becomes sin. The impeccably innocent the accused. Why? For you. For you. To save you. And all of it foretold, foreshadowed in the life of a man who at that time in the king's prison between the baker and the cupbearer could hardly have imagined that among all of the other things God was doing in his life, there was the embodiment and the proclamation of the gospel that would leave God's people in awe and wonder and amazement for generations, now for millennia. Have you ever been falsely accused Has anyone ever said that you committed a crime or a sin that you did not? Blamed you for something you did not do? Well, then you know something. Just something, mind you, of what it was like for Joseph and even more for Jesus to bear the blame and even more the penalty for something he never 
did. In Joseph's case, of course, he was a sinner, so that while his suffering was indeed unjust in this case, it is not totally unreasonable, but Jesus... Jesus was perfectly innocent, perfectly holy. He had spent his days and his nights, every one of them, fighting temptation at every turn, every minute of his life, and winning every time, though it cost him every ounce of his energy, the combined forces of his heart and soul and mind and body to put those temptations one after another after another away. And now on the cross, they wagged their heads at him as if between those two criminals he is guilty of every known sin. tell you we will never ever plumb the depths I don't care if we have the rest of all eternity you and I will never know the depths nor the heights the heights of love that compelled him to go to such depths of humiliation and suffering for us Yet in the midst, in the midst of the humiliation, we see second exaltation. At least the seeds of exaltation are sown even in humiliation. In prison, Joseph interprets the dreams of his fellow prisoners. It's not divination. It's not witchcraft that he employs. It is God who reveals to Joseph the meaning of these dreams. But in the process, Joseph as much as declares the death of one and the life of the other. Is that not exactly what Jesus did on the cross? For one fellow prisoner, the one who would turn to Christ even as they hung there side by side, with faith calling upon the Christ to save him. I say, for that dying man, Jesus became the aroma of life. And that day, they were together in paradise. But to the criminal who mocked him, to the one who would not turn with faith to the Son, Jesus was the aroma of death to him who would later that day, like the baker who was beheaded and then hung, exposed, enter the fullness of the curse which he preferred. As we read in chapter 40 of Genesis, we know where all of this is going. Some of you have heard this from the days of your youth and Sunday school at the supper table. We smile, of course, because we know that even in the very midst of this suffering, the way to Joseph's exaltation is being laid. 
being paved, we might say. The interpretation of those dreams in prison will eventually lead to a throne next to Pharaoh's. And when Jesus says, from the pit of death to the one next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. There, even in the humiliation, we glimpse the exaltation to come. Joseph would not remain in prison, nor would Jesus on the cross, nor in his tomb. And Joseph's rise to power and to glory, we see Jesus rise to his throne in heaven to the glory that can be known only at the side of his father's throne where Jesus is today ruling and reigning over all things until his enemies are made a footstool to his feet and all his people brought safely to him. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that that the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess and everyone will to his life or to his death that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen to F.B. Meyer. We have now, therefore, to think of Jesus as seated on his throne, prime minister of the universe, the interpreter of his father's will, the organ and executor of the divine decrees. On his head are many crowns. On his finger is the ring of sovereignty. On his loins, the girdle of power. Glistening robes of light envelop him and this cry precedes him bow the knee have you ever bowed at his feet have you bowed at Christ's feet it is of no avail to oppose him. The tongue of malice and envy may traduce him and refuse to let him reign, but nothing can upset the Father's decree and plan. Yet have I set my Son upon my holy hill. Agree with him. Quickly, ground your arms at his feet. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry with you. Do you see now, brothers and sisters, why Dr. Collins would say that the gospel is even clear in the New Testament? Joseph, in his humiliation and in his exaltation, is a living, breathing picture, proclamation of Christ 2,000 years before his coming. 
there are some lessons for us to learn from all of this, and just briefly I will list just three of them for you. First of this is this. Mark this well, dear flock. God is unfolding one unified world history. And within that history, he is unfolding his salvation history as he has been since the first day of creation. From the first word that spoke, let there be light. To the eternal day. From the first word that spoke, let there be light to the eternal day that will dawn in that place. We need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be our light and will reign forever and ever. God is working out all of his purposes according to his eternal will. We see that even in the life of Joseph, so carefully, so meticulously governed by the hand of God as the revelation and, and perfect of the perfect and complete control he has over all things for the sake of his church. Salvation, Christ, the cross, the throne, the humiliation, the exaltation, all of it are according to the eternal purposes of our sovereign history directing God. There is brothers and sisters, there is no plan B. There is no plan B. There is only plan A. God's plan, the plan and the unfolding of the plan of him who knows the beginning from the end and directs it all for his own glory and according to the counsel of his own will. Second, Along the way, God has been redeeming a people for himself all along the way. It may be that in the olden days they were not able to apprehend the plans of God as well as those who look back on them. Joseph couldn't have known how perfectly his own life and experience would match the Savior's. But his lack of comprehension did not at all affect God's determination to redeem a people for himself, God all along the way revealed as much to men and women, to boys and girls as they needed to know and understand to be his people. From that place in Eden to this very day, God has been bringing and continues to bring to himself people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people by revealing himself to them. And then third, the highest, fullest, most complete expression of God's redemptive purposes and the outworking of his redemption have come to us in Christ Jesus. Right at the center of it all, at the pinnacle of his redeeming work, God has placed his Son. In the fullness of time, he came to us to save those before and at and ever since the time of his sojourn on earth according to his perfect plan for the redemption of his people. God has done this in all of history, all of history in one way or another rises up whether willingly or unwillingly, whether wittingly or unwittingly wittingly rises up 
and points to the Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.